I want to start a new series with you this weekend on courageous love. And this is based, of course, on our vision statement to courageously love and empower people to become like Jesus. And so if you want to follow this in your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 88. You'll find message notes online on the app and the website by clicking the media button. And you can also take your own notes. If you are taking your own notes, the title of this message is Courageous in the Face of Grief. And I'm talking about grief from all kinds of loss. So before you tune out, you go, well, I haven't had a big loss and I'm not in grief at the moment. I think as you stay engaged through this message, you'll realise that this is actually appropriate to all of us uh, for most of the time. And if it's not appropriate to you at the moment, sometime in the future it will be, and it'll be appropriate to people around you as well. So I, I hope you're encouraged by this word today. So Psalm 88, that we're going to read in a moment. The Psalms are an absolutely wonderful source of expression of genuine faith. You can divide the Psalms into three groups. Group number one would be, everything is wonderful, praise the Lord, hallelujah. Group number two is, everything is not wonderful, I'm struggling like crazy, but the Lord is going to rescue me, hallelujah. And then you get to group number three, everything is not wonderful, I'm struggling like crazy, I'm praying hard, but God's not listening, in fact, I think he's gone missing. Uh, out of the 150 Psalms, 42 of them fit into the everything is not wonderful category. They're often referred to as the lament Psalms. And think almost a third of the Psalms fall into the lament Psalm category of everything is not wonderful. One of those Psalms is Psalm 88. And we're going to read the 11 verses of that right now. Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night I cry to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. I'm overwhelmed with troubles and my life draws near to death. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm like one without strength. I am set apart with the dead, with the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the deepest darkness or darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You have taken from me my closest friends. You have made me repulsive to them. I am confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do their spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness and destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? But I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth, I have suffered and been close to death. I have borne your terrors and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long, they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken from me, friend and neighbour. Darkness is my closest friend, the end. It's a cheerful little ditty, isn't it? Psalm 88, full of lament. So what wonderful truth can we glean from this? Well, I think it all begins actually in the psalm title. 
And the psalm titles give us quite often an insight into what is to come. So if you look at the psalm title here, first of all, it says it's a song. It's a psalm of the sons of Korah for the director of music, according to Mahalath Leonoth, a mascal of Heman, the Ezrahite. So that sounds like a whole mouthful. What does it mean? Well, first of all, it's a song. So people would have sung this in the temple. It was a psalm of the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah were related to Moses. In fact, um, Korah was Moses' cousin. This was written for the director of music. And so Heman would have written the lyrics and then sent these across to the director of music in the temple for it to be set to music and then sung or introduced as a new song in the temple. And this was for the director of music according to Mahalath Leonoth, which means it was a tune that was popular in the day and the tune was called The Suffering of Affliction. So this was in like the top 40 in 645 BC, all right? This is a well-known tune and it was called The Suffering of Affliction. A masculine is simply a contemplative poem and it was written by this guy, He-Man the Ezraite. Now I Googled He-Man, the first thing that came up incidentally was an ad for a book by a guy called Robert Sears and it is called The Beautiful Poetry of Donald Trump. Now I didn't know Donald Trump was a poet, in fact, he's not, but Robert Sears has taken Donald Trump's tweets and rearranged them into poems on various subjects. I, I'm pretty sure it's satirical. The next thing that came up was this. Uh, this is He-Man, okay? And I know you're thinking, gee, he looks an awful lot like Rob, but hey, he's a different person. The second one is an impression of what Heman the Ezraite would have looked like. There he is sitting and he's playing on his harp or his lyre and he's singing and composing songs. According to the Bible, He-Man was one of the three Levites assigned by King David to be ministers of music. He was a grandson of Samuel the prophet and he went on to become King David's prophet. He was a wise, talented, accomplished and blessed man. He had 14 exceptional sons and daughters. Many of them were musicians and singers in their own right and they served King David and King Solomon. And yet he obviously, this guy Heman, faced some pretty dark times. Psalm 88 is a sad song. It's the saddest of all the Psalms. But as the prophet Elton tells us, sad songs say so much. And we will certainly see that as we unpack this psalm today. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher of the 1900s, he wrote the following about Psalm 88. He said, in this psalm, Heman makes a map of his life's history. He puts down all the dark places through which he has travelled. He mentions his sins, his sorrows, his hopes, if he had any, his fears, his woes, and so on. Now that is real prayer, says Spurgeon, laying your case before the Lord. And that's what he was doing here. He was talking about grief. He said, my eyes are dim with grief. He was experiencing all kinds of stuff. And he sat and wrote this amazing song that I want to unpack with you today. In fact, in this message, I want to highlight a couple of very healthy ways that we can be courageous in the face of grief. The first thing is express yourself. Express yourself. That's what Heman did here. Uh, he sat down, he wrote a song about his grief and his dark times and his troubles and his losses and his, and his difficulties. And here we are, 
2,645 years later, reading this same song. We don't sing it anymore, but out of all of the songs that Heman wrote, this is the only one that we still have in inspired scripture. There must be something here that God has kept for us in this day and age that we can learn, that we can glean. And this is, the fact is that Heman expressed himself in the middle of his grief. In other words, he wasn't a real man. He didn't bottle it all up and then die of a heart attack. He, he, he was healthy in his masculinity. He actually sat down and wrote a song chronicling all the things that he was facing. Now, this is a song, as I said before, that would have been introduced into the temple. So this is something that would have been sung communally as were all the Psalms. That is, he expressed himself within his community of faith, a group of people who could then gather around him and support him through his times of grief and loss. How wonderful community is. I, you know, it's, I think sometimes we take for granted the wonderful things that we have as being part of a church community. And I know that we can't gather at the moment, but we can still engage with one another. We can still be part of Zoom connect groups. We can still pick up the phone and, and ring people and find out how they are. We can still slow down and stop and chat with our neighbours and ask them how they are, particularly those who are maybe elderly or more vulnerable. We can help people through their times of difficulty in community together. Now, grief is simply this. It is emotionally processing a loss. And it's a process with lots of ups and downs. Now, as I mentioned before, losses can be big or they can be small. They could be massive, like the death of a loved one or a friend or a pet. I've, I've noticed a few, few times recently on, on Facebook, there's two or three of our church community who have just lost a pet, a dog uh, or a cat or, or some other sort of pet. And I know that there are people in grief because of the loss of a pet. And, uh, and that's a very dear thing. I've had a number of dogs over the years. My last dog I had to put down on Mother's Day a few years ago, and it's a dreadful thing. The Bible tells us that the godly care for their animals. That's in, in Proverbs chapter 12 and verse 10. And so we deeply care for our animals, and so obviously we experience grief and loss when they pass. Others can go through grief and loss at the ending of a marriage. Sometimes people lose a baby, either through miscarriage or stillbirth, there's conflict in friendship that leads then to the inevitable ending of a friendship. And that's one of the things that Heman had experienced. It tells us in Psalm 88, you have taken from me my closest friends. So that was part of his grief and loss. Sometimes it's a loss of health or life changes, things like retirement or moving house. It can be the loss of a dream. All of us have got dreams for our future, but sometimes we get to the point in life where we realise that that dream can never be fulfilled. Amelia mentioned last week in her wonderful message on Bayside Church Online uh, on Mother's Day how sometimes Mother's Day is a painful time for people, particularly people who have wanted to become parents, mums and dads, and they get to that point in their life where they realise that that dream is never going to be fulfilled. And so there's a sense of grief and loss that happens as a result of that. There can be a loss of identity. I've experienced that over the years. I remember leaving radio in Western Australia in 1984 when the Lord called me into pastoral ministry and I had to leave my town, Geraldton, in Western Australia. 
and, and go to New South Wales where I didn't know anyone and I, I went to Bible college three t- for three years full time. And I was the breakfast announcer in Geraldton on the commercial radio station there. So 20,000 plus people in the town, everybody knew Rob Buckingham. I was the breakfast announcer on that radio station and that was my identity. And I left that, went to Bible college, nobody knew me and I got a job as a trolley boy in the local Kmart. So there's a loss of identity for you. Breakfast announcer, well-known, popular, trolley boy. And there can be a certain amount of grief and loss that goes along with that. Of course, the thing I learned through all of that was that my identity is found in Jesus Christ, not in what I do. A number of people are going through grief and loss at this particular time because of the COVID-19 crisis. Some people have experienced the loss of a job or the changes in financial security because you've had to take a pay cut. Uh, Other people have Uh, experience. In fact, all of us have experienced a loss of freedom during this time and also a loss of safety. It's particularly in the early days of all of this, walking outside the house, going to get food and everyone was looking nervous and on edge, you know, because the people in the aisle could have the coronavirus. And so there was a certain aspect of grief and loss. And so the first thing we have to do when we to be courageous in the face of grief is to learn to express ourselves. I'm going to confess to you, I, I've sometimes been a little bit judgmental of people from Eastern cultures, not, not verbally, but just in my head. You know, when I've watched the news and see people, say, from uh, Eastern cultures or the Middle East and they're grieving and there's a lot of crying and, and uh, you know, emotion and physical kind of activity that's being shown. And I must admit, you know, in my conservative Anglo-Aussie brain, I looked at that and I go, oh my goodness, that's a bit excessive or is that a bit over the top? But the actual fact, it isn't, you know, and in fact, the Bible is an Eastern book. It comes from the Middle East. And and in Bible days, they used to tear their clothes when they were in grief and they would put on sackcloth and sit in ashes and throw the ashes up into the air and put the ashes on their head. And that was an outward expression. They were expressing themselves and actually in a very, very healthy way. One person that did that was Job, of course, the oldest story in the Bible. I wrote a blog about it a couple of weeks ago. You can find it on the Bayside Church website. Have a read of that. I'll give you some great insight into this man who in one day lost all of his children and then he lost all of his animals, all of his businesses and then a while later he lost his health. And we see Job tearing his clothes, putting on sackcloth, sitting in ashes and then his friends arrive and they sit with him for seven days. No one says a word and then after seven days Job opens his mouth and he starts to express himself. And he says, I regret the day I was born and who can blame him? What an awful thing he went through. And you know, in the second chapter, we hear from Mrs. Job. We don't know what her name is. She's one of the nameless people in the Bible. But Mrs. Job, Job's wife, as she's referred to, looked at her husband and, and, and her response was, why don't you just curse God and die? And, and Mrs. Job, she's copped a bit of a bad rap over the years. I mean, you know, the first thing out of her mouth is that. But can you just stop and think for a moment what this woman had just gone through. She'd just lost all of her kids, all of her financial security. Her husband was was sick and no one knew why. 
All of the businesses, the family businesses had gone. This woman was in deep grief and she was actually expressing herself. What happens in the next few chapters is a discourse between Job and his three friends that he refers to as miserable comforters, and they certainly were. If we were to summarise everything that the so-called comforters were saying to Job, it was basically this. Job, you're sick and you're suffering because you don't have enough faith or because you've got sin in your life and you need to repent. Any of that sound at all familiar? I've heard Christian people say those things to one another over the years. Can I encourage you never to say those things? Even if they would happen to be true, how horribly discouraging to say something like that to a person who is suffering from grief and loss. We get to the end of the story and we actually find that Job has been correct in the things that he has said and, uh, and God ends up rebuking the miserable comforters and he says, you have not spoken correctly of me like Job has. It's a fascinating story. It's all about grief and loss and expressing yourself. The fact that the lament psalms like Psalm 88 are included in inspired scripture tells us a lot. It tells us that God is totally okay with human grief and with humans expressing their grief. He's fine with being questioned, with people being angry with him, with people accusing him. God is not going to smite you. He's not going to turn away from you or stop listening to you and he will not go off in a holy huff. The Lord challenged people over many sins such as idolatry and their failure to show justice to the poor and to the marginalised. He gets in the face of the hypocrites and the tightwads but not once does he correct those who vent their frustration at him when they feel he's disinterested far away or has abandoned them. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Psalm 34, 18 tells us that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. In other words, he's close to those who are courageous in the face of grief. Many of you know, of course, that Christy and I were very close to a number of the Bali Nine, and particularly to Andrew Chan and Maya Sukumaran. And I happened to be at Karabakan Prison on the day that Maya had his last clemency appeal rejected. And I said to him, I said, would you like to catch up and have a chat? And he said, yeah, I'd love to. So the next day I organised to go into the prison and the uh, prison authorities gave us a quiet place to go and sit. Mayu had been raised in a Christian home in uh, following Jesus Christ, but obviously he had walked away. And as part of our conversation, I said to him, Mayu, how's your faith going at the moment? And he said, well, quite honestly, He said, I'm angry at God. And I think maybe he thought that I would say something like, well, you shouldn't be angry with God. But instead, I just said to him, oh, okay, so why would that be a problem? And he he looked at me and I said, you know what? The Psalms are full of people expressing anger and frustration and questioning God. And I encourage you to read the Psalms and express your own heart honestly to God. And so he started doing that a little while later he told me he'd had this experience. He was, he was sitting at the prison and he was really wondering whether God really existed. Was God real or not? And then he realised that he was angry with God and that you can't be angry with someone who doesn't exist. And so he came back into his faith in God. And by the time of just before his execution, he said to Christy that if he had longer to live, he would want to devote his life to following Jesus and he'd want to be a pastor. 
That all came out of a conversation of being honest and expressing yourself at a time of grief and loss. The second and final thing I want to share with you about dealing with grief and loss is resisting platitudes. I've just finished reading this uh, amazing book. This is called Faith, Death and Pills. It's written by a guy called Nick Mackay, uh, who, who I know. He's an acquaintance, a uh, wonderful, wonderful young man. And, and he talks about his faith journey of how he came to faith in Jesus Christ and then how he and uh, his wife went through a horrendous time of um, falling pregnant and uh, giving birth to a very premature baby. In fact, their little baby girl was born at just 23 weeks. And she lived for a few weeks and then, and then passed away. And so that's the death part, faith, death. And the final part is called pills. And uh, he chronicles there the journey of dealing with grief and depression and anxiety uh, in his life. It's a very real and a very honest book. And uh, he here talks about the problem of day two. And he said we think, he thinks that Christians have a problem with day two. What he means is Jesus died on day one and on the third day he was resurrected. And he said the church has no problem with day one. We have no problem. In fact, we celebrate the death of Jesus Christ. And we have no problem with day three, which is all about resurrection and joy and, and fulfilled hopes and dreams. But day two is the problem. Let me read a couple of paragraphs to you from Nick's book. The problem with day two is there's no knowing how long it will last. It certainly won't be a 24-hour day. It could be a year, it could be five years, and without the right tools and support, it could be a lifetime. Day two is hard. I can only imagine how hard it was for the disciples to maintain any semblance of faith on day two, because on day two, Jesus was still dead, and despite his promises, there was no signs of that changing. And he goes on, he says, I don't think we suck at day two because it's hard. I think we suck at it because we're afraid, afraid to feel the pain of death, afraid to acknowledge the reality of loss, afraid to grapple with a loving God who allows this to happen, even if he doesn't cause it. That fear robs us of our freedom and our intimacy with God because God is in the pain. It's a wonderful book. I encourage you to get a hold of Faith, Death and Pills by Nick Mackay. As I mentioned to you, Nick and his wife Dawn lost their first child, a little baby girl. And in the book, he refers to people giving them sort of platitudes like, well, you can have other children. But yeah, nothing replaces the child that you've lost. Let's resist platitudes. Things like, there's plenty more fish in the sea. You're still young. You can always remarry. You can get another dog, cat, bird. There's a reason for everything. They're in a better place. Time heals all wounds. Try to look for the good. Be positive. Try not to cry. They wouldn't want you to cry. It's all happened for the best. It's time to put all this behind you. Everything will be okay. Those and other platitudes that, that people say, often because we're uncomfortable with grief and loss, and instead of saying nothing, we say something which ends up being the wrong thing. In the radio station I referred to earlier in Western Australia, there was a, a 
poster on the wall and it said, it is better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to speak and remove all doubt. And I think that there are times when we should just zip the lip and not say anything and just be a faithful presence to people when they're going through tough times. You know, saying things like everything will be okay, we don't know that. Not everything ends well. Look at Psalm 88. Look at the last verse. Look at how Psalm 88 ends. You have taken from me, friend and neighbour, darkness darkness is my closest friend, the end. The Hebrew reads like this. You have put far from me, loved one and friend, and my acquaintances into darkness. Darkness is the last word. Not everything ends well, and a faith that tries to convince you otherwise is a fake faith. Jesus is a wonderful role model when it comes to being courageous in the face of grief. We see Jesus God in human form, having left his divine qualities behind him, he hears that Lazarus is sick and by the time he actually gets there, he seems to be surprised that Lazarus is dead. In fact, that Lazarus has been dead for four days already and he goes to the tomb and he stands there and he bursts into tears. He weeps in front of all the people at the loss of his friend. The people around him said, see how much he loved him. Jesus set us a wonderful example of being courageous in the face of grief. A number of years ago, Christy and I were in South Africa and uh, we met a, a lovely lady who's become a very good friend and particularly to Christy. And uh, I'm going to refer to her as Mary. I don't want to identify her by her real name. But Mary's story was just simply this, that she had lost one of her sons in a traffic accident. But she was part of a very positive, upbeat church where you had to always have a good confession. You couldn't say uh, anything negative or actually really tell people how you were because you were always well and everything was always wonderful. And so Mary had never had the chance to grieve. In fact, the elders of the church went around to pray with her and they saw a poster on the wall of a rugby team and they told her that she should get that off the wall because that was idolatry and if she didn't get that off the wall, something bad would happen to her other son. And so by the time we met her, this was many, many years later, but she really hadn't fully and completely and totally grieved. But thankfully to some dear friends, including Christy, she was able to express her grief in a healthy way and to resist the platitudes. She was told by her church a couple of verses like this, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Hey, Jesus has borne our grief, so you don't have to grieve. Or 1 Thessalonians 4.13, do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. But those verses are taken out of context. In fact, in Isaiah, surely is born our griefs. The word born there is the same word as translated lifted of the water uh, under Noah's ark. And so what we find in time of grief is the presence of God that will lift us and carry us through our dark times, but he doesn't always take them away. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 13 in context is talking about believers who have died. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. 
For we believe that Jesus died and rose again so that we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. And so, yes, as Christians, we have a wonderful hope. We don't grieve like the rest of the human race who have no hope. We, we have hope, but it doesn't mean we don't grieve. Mary today has worked through a lot of that and is in a much healthier church in this day and age. And the thing that we take away from this and, and something that Christy says on a regular basis is that our walk with the Lord has to be based on relationship and not outcomes. And that's the truth I want you to leave you with this weekend. And the question that I want to ask you, is your faith in God, is your faith in Jesus based on relationship or is it based on outcomes? I find so many contemporary Christians have an outcome-based faith. They follow God if he blesses them, if he prospers them, if he heals them, if everything's going well. But if dark times arrive, if, if loss and grief are part of the picture in our lives, I see people walking away from God. And can I encourage you just to do a little bit of introspection this week? I'm going to pray for you in just a moment and ask yourself that question. Ask it and ask it honestly. Is my walk with the Lord based on relationship or outcome? Let me leave you with this beautiful Psalm 42 verse 11. Why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? I will put my hope in God. I will praise him again, my saviour and my God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for your word. We thank you for Heman the Ezraite, who out of all the songs that he wrote, that we have this one, Psalm 88, with us today. You've left it for a purpose, for a reason. Lord, as we read it, as we express our own loss and grief, even at this time of COVID-19, or maybe in the future, Lord God, I pray that this truth will grip our hearts and minds and change our lives, that it will minister to us and we might minister to others as we express ourselves and as we resist platitudes. I pray for every person at Bayside Church and for others that have gathered with us, Lord. I pray for your blessing upon them and I pray for each and every one of us that our walk with you will be based on our relationship with you, not on the outcomes of our faith. God bless you, church.